Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be listing 10 reasons why you should be a theist. Not atheist, but a theist, of course. Now, they're in no particular order. I suppose that in general the ones that I like or I think are the strongest are towards the top. And um, I think you'll enjoy them all. Now, we're not going to have time to do a bunch of objections for each one or to really get into it. Huge amount of the nitty-gritty details Each one of these deserves probably about an hour or so to lay it out reasonably well. And I've done that for one of them, the fourth way, and you can look back at that episode. Speaking of the fourth way, I invited a professor to come on the show and walk through Ed Fazer's version of the fourth way argument with me. And I think we can explain a bunch of the key premises along the way. He wrote his dissertation about six years ago on the topic of the fourth way of Aquinas, which is, as you know, the least understood, the most ignored, and everybody else's least favorite of his five. But I like it, he likes it, and we like to chat about it. So I'm looking forward to that as a uh, subsequent episode. It's probably going to be a couple months down the line. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's deal with number one. And the first one, is quite appropriately Thomas Aquinas's fourth, I mean, sorry, first way. That would make more sense, now wouldn't it? So to understand his first way, we need to get a few metaphysical pieces on the table. The number one is the distinction between act and potency. I don't know if you are familiar with these or not, but let me talk a little bit about where this distinction came from. So there were two schools of thought way back in the day Uh, One was typified by Heraclitus and the other typified by Parmenides. Now, Heraclitus said that all of the world is in flux, where basically everything is change. Parmenides, on the other side, said, no, you're actually 100% wrong, and everything just is. It's not in change, it's not non-being, just things are. So he would accept more of a static universe, that there's no real change. It seems like there is, but there's not. Now, both of these to us, thankfully, sound a wee bit ridiculous. I mean, isn't the truth somewhere in the middle? Isn't there a little bit of both? Well, enter Aristotle, Mr. Via Media, the middle way, where he carves out a middle between these two. Now, before you think that this is kind of silly to hold one of these positions, let let me lay out a bit of an argument. So here's two possibilities. Hold out your two hands. Now in your left hand, imagine that your left hand exists, but now it's going to change into a second thing, which could be understood as your your right hand. So we go from left hand existing to right hand existing. Now possibility one is when we go from this one thing to the other thing, The first thing, your left hand, which you're holding out, unless you're listening to this while driving or something, at which point, two hands on the wheel. Um, So your left hand either stays in existence during the time that the right hand, the second thing, is generated, or option two is it goes out of existence prior to the right hand coming into existence. Okay? So let's take option one. It stays in existence And then, bang, the second thing comes into existence. Well, wait a minute. We just have this static left hand sitting out there 
and poof, the right hand comes into existence. Well, that's not possible because out of nothing, nothing comes. I mean, if the entire set of conditions necessary to generate another thing were a set filled with nothing, well then at all times, at all places, then all of the necessary conditions for things to be generated would be fulfilled. So we would just have the universe at every time and place being filled up with things because things can come from nothing. But this clearly isn't true. So in the first case, if the thing persists in existence and then poof, another thing comes into existence, this is impossible because out of nothing, nothing comes. All right, so let's look at the other way. And this would seem to include all possibilities. Either it stays in existence or it doesn't. So if it doesn't and you're holding out your two hands and, well, your right hand doesn't exist yet, and before your right hand is generated, your left hand disappears, well, now we have a state of nothingness. It's before your right hand came into existence and it's after your left hand exited existence. But wait, out of nothing, nothing comes. So how exactly do we explain changes of one thing to another thing that we clearly see? It doesn't seem to make sense. We can't have it, the previous producing thing, stay in existence, but we also can't have it go out of existence. What on earth is going on? So Aristotle says that there is an in-between, between actually existing, which he would call act, and non, non-being, just nothing there. And he would call this thing potential. Now, it's real, but it's not in act. So it's this in-between state. And we're going to have to uh, end that explanation there. But I'll give an example of how this is working in the real world. Right now, quantum computers work not with just ones and zeros, but they also include a superstate. So this superstate is not a hidden one, nor is it a hidden zero. It's something else. It is potentially one and potentially zero. And we solve real things right now with machines which operate on Aristotle's principle of a real potential, something that actually exists, but it's neither act, represented by the one, or non-being, represented by the zero. All right, so we have that. Um, the next thing you need to know is that act, as he defines it, so that, you know, being, existing kind of thing, um, that would include things like thinking. Thinking is an actuality. Uh, creating things, that's an actuality. Um, the existence and the exercise of will, well, that has to do with act. It's not being, it's not non-being, and potential would be only potentially existing, only potentially thinking, only potentially creating, or only potentially willing. But if you're really actually doing that, well, that's in the category of act. Now, potentials point towards an end, but have not reached it yet. So a match has the potential to be lit on fire. That's what the phosphorus and chemicals and things in it um, orient it towards, that if it was struck in the future, if a set of conditions comes about, it will light on fire. Your ice cube does not have this potential. And I'll just kind of put a pin right here. We can actually differentiate two different things based on what potentials they have. Um, And remember this other part that potentials point towards a future actual state. It's something that's part of the thing that points outside of itself, which is kind of spooky and kind of cool. 
And just to reiterate, we have our nothing category. So there are three categories, act, potential, and, well, nothing. So Aquinas says that things do, in fact, change. And again, his idea of change is going from potentially something to actually something. Now, they can't make themselves do this since they would have to be in a state of act in order to do the actualizing. But if they were already in a state of act, well, then they wouldn't need something to actualize their potential to exist and do things. They would already be actual. So another option is, well, they could be in non-being, but out of nothing, nothing comes. Non-being can't create any type of actuality. And if it's just in a state of potential, well, it's awaiting its actualization. It can't do anything either. You can't burn yourself on a, hot, on a potentially hot stove, only on an actually hot stove. So the preceding cause for everything in act must be in act itself, because it can't be non-being, it can't be potential, therefore it must be in act. Now this chain can't be infinitely long because we'd be infinitely deferring the actuality of the things which are in fact in act right now. And all things which are in act, including us being able to talk and think and, and, and whatnot, are only in act insofar as they've been put in act by something which is prior. So all of our actuality is derivative um, of something at the beginning of this long causal chain. So therefore, we know there must be a first member because this chain can't be infinitely long. That would be like having an infinitely long uh, electrical wire and saying, well, if I make the wire long enough, it'll have current at the end. Well, no, you're misunderstanding it. The wire can pass its, in this case, the example would be actuality, but in that case, it'd be electricity from one end to the other. Yeah, that's what it does. Um, just like things which are in a state of potential can pass their actuality to the next thing once they're actualized. Um, but just making an infinitely long wire won't cause electricity to be, exist. Anything in a circuit requires uh, the thing with the power itself at the beginning of the circuit in order to power everything. And that's what we have set up in the first way. All of these powers of actuality, of thinking, of creating, of moving, of whatever it may be, well, we're basically at the end of a circuit, and that circuit must be passing power from a source of power, actuality from a source of actuality. So this first member is that from which all actuality, all act, is derived in all of reality. So therefore, this first member is maximally actual. So limits or constraints could in no way have the power to constrain such a being because they would have to have this power from the first member to even begin limiting. So even the limits would be derivative of this first member. Therefore, he's not limited by anything other than himself, right? So it's only its own nature of the thing at the beginning of, of this series which could possibly limit itself. So it is... It's unlimited. It can do whatever it does. And this first member, being the source of all actuality, is unlimited, all-powerful, complete, full, entire act, in so much as all of it exists. And one type of act, as we talked about earlier, 
is, um, is reason and, and will and intention. So this first member, since it is the thing which passes all actuality up this giant chain, has at least uh, reason, at least will. Um, now it has it maybe in a way that looks differently, but that is the, uh, that is the power um, from which we derive these actualities. So it must exist in some way in this first member. So the first member would have to be pure actuality and not a mix of potential and act because any composite being is dependent on its parts and the principle of unity that brings those parts together into unity. And such a being would not be the first member of the set since it itself would require an actualization of its potential to exist. And that actualization, that actualizing thing that brings these parts into unity, um, well, that would be God. And this composite being, which was an admix of potency and act, well, that wouldn't be God. So a pure act being, which we have concluded to, explains its own existence because its nature is existence. Thereby, it's not ending arbitrarily, but we've, we've found the end in a necessarily existent, all-powerful being with rationality and will that causes all things and is the source of all power through its own nature because it doesn't even have a division between its, its nature and its existence. Its nature just is existence. Um, and the existence, which is a verb, um, in this case, we would call such a thing actuality. It is pure actuality, not mixed with anything else. And this would be true by necessity, because anything which was a composite would not be the first member. All right, I threw a lot at you guys. Um, now, some of these, most of these, maybe all of these, I'm kind of doing from memory as best I can. Um, you know, I have a, a few things in mind to, to hit, um, but I'm sure I'm going to make a few mistakes along the way. And there might be some places where I'm not entirely clear, or maybe you haven't heard some of these terms or concepts before. So email me, email me at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. And I respond to every email. I read every email. And anything for the mailbag, I always include um, on one of the episodes. So always happy to hear from you. And if you hate this, of course, um, I always want to hear hate mail. Uh, it's informative. It's exciting. And uh, you really know that you've made it when you start getting hate mail. And ooh, good transition talking about hate. Uh, the moral argument is argument number two. Now, for this one, I'm borrowing some material that I, that I had from an email. Wow, that was a better segue than I even thought. Uh, somebody asked me a bunch of questions about natural law, morality, God, things like that. So I'll be going through a little bit of what I said to him. All right. Do, 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 do. There are two possibilities regarding morality. Either morality is real or it is not. If it is real, this means that it's not constructed, but instead discovered. Math would be a good comparison. We don't invent math as if it could have been differently. Instead, if we use our reason properly and diligently, all people would arrive at the same math. Math is therefore not a social construct, but instead an immaterial feature of reality that rational minds can come to understand. I would argue that morality is the same. 
we can use our powers of reason to understand that murder, rape, and theft are wrong. If we found a culture that believed these things were right, well, they would be incorrect, just like if they believed 2 plus 2 equals 5. Some object it could be the case that they were right and were wrong, and without an infallible authority, we could never know for certain who's who. But two points about that. One, we don't apply that criticism to math. We can understand and determine who is right and who is wrong by using reason and looking back to see what steps one may have gone wrong in their moral calculus. Uh, secondly, if you're in the Catholic tradition, well, cool, you do accept an infallible teaching office, and yes, we do have arguments why this is very important, like, that's part of our faith. Yes, you have hit on something important. Um, we would need an authority on morals, and uh, inside of our worldview, we have one, and if you're a Christian in general, you also have one, and it's called um, the Bible. That would have the authoritative way to judge between right and wrong. Um, but speaking of, of this line of argument in general that people would disagree about um, conclusions in morality, here's the thing. Diversity of opinion on moral topics is no more of a refutation of an absolute moral truth than diversity of opinion on mathematical to topics would prove that math is not objectively real and outside of ourselves. So just because you have a classroom of students who all get the wrong answer and therefore all have different answers from their, their teacher doesn't mean that a teacher couldn't be teaching the true thing and doesn't mean that math is somehow radically subjective. Same is true with morals. All right. So most people, religious and non-religious, believe that moral laws are in fact real. This is a very common view, moral realism. At very least, they act like they are, so they seem to believe this in their lived life. And it ought to be common sense to say that Hitler was evil and his actions were wrong. And this is not up to, to interpretation, or, and it's not a, just a matter of perspective, but it's definitive. It's clear. There's something true about saying that Hitler was evil and his actions were wrong. Some might even say that some of these truths are properly basic and need not even be argued for because they're readily seen with the powers of a properly functioning intellect. So if morality is not real, then people have to bite the bullet and say that murder, rape, theft, these things are not really wrong, but just maybe not societally optimal. Or they simply have a set of preferences against those things. And this has a very strange group of consequences. For instance, no one can be justly punished because there is no such thing as a moral infraction if there's no such thing as a real standard of morality. And therefore, well, there's no such thing as justice. And without a principle of justice, it's actually impossible to build any civilization. So this view is not recommended. I would encourage you listeners instead to go for moral realism. And I don't see any good grounds for doubting that morality really exists and calling into question in the first place that strikes me as a type of extreme skepticism that has no rational reason for it being applied. It's rational to accept what seems clear and immediately obvious unless there's good reason to do otherwise. You should accept, for example, that the world around you is real and not some type of trick, deception, or, you know, you living in the matrix, because you seem to have rationally functioning uh, uh, faculties. It's readily clear, obvious, and apparent to your mind that these things are real, and you would need an extraordinarily strong defeater 
to push yourself off of this common sense view. And once you start to bring in this type of skepticism, then it undermines the entire rational project to begin with, including any arguments that you could use to try to confront arguments for uh, realism of the things around you. And I would say one thing around you is the presence of a moral law. All right, so where would this moral law come from? Because moral laws are different from laws like gravity. The law of gravity describes what objects with mass will do. The law does not prescribe what they ought to do, but moral laws do prescribe actions. However, if a law prescribes an action, then it is aiming at an end. Actually, it's aiming you at an end. For instance, if your friend starts choking, the moral law prescribes that you run over and do what you can to save them. So the action of saving someone is aimed at preserving life. Therefore, the moral law aims you at saving your friend's life. So here, something very strange has happened. No purely physical thing can aim at a future event with intent. Imagining a future outcome and intending a goal is the action of a mind. And we'll get more into this in the uh, fifth way of, of Aquinas. So therefore, the moral law is the command of a mind directed to us to achieve certain goods. So if this mind was just an alien or a demigod, then why would we listen to him or her? How does this make the moral law any more real than you or I having preferences for one outcome over another? Only if this mind that makes these moral prescriptions has a real authority over us and grounds the moral law in something ultimately good, can we have the moral absolutes that we clearly do have. So God is understood in classical theism as the infinite good, and he grounds the moral law ultimately in his own nature. Being the good himself, and, oh, and we'll hit that more in the fourth way, and the creator grants him authority to make moral commands and to become the standard of what is right and wrong. All of us have the experience of considering an immoral act and feeling our conscience tell us not to do it. This is no mere preference. Your preference for hamburgers over hot dogs or red over blue does not command you, does not stand opposed to you in your desires. It is your desires. These features are indicative of an encounter with something other than yourself, namely God through his moral law, communicated to you through conscience, and, of course, reasoning about the natural law itself. Now, this one is particularly persuasive, I find, to people who don't study deeply in philosophy, not because it can't be put in a very rigorous way, a way that I didn't really do in this one, but instead it just meets our intuitions that, yeah, morality is real, yes, it's important, no, it can't be rooted in just material. Material can't do that. It could be rooted in natures, but why doesn't nature have any type of authority over us? And furthermore, if you start to accept things like natures, well, now you're in Aristotle's territory, and poof, you're going to be going right down into the classic arguments for God. Um, and, you know, I, I don't. as another supplement to this particular way, uh, if you haven't already, listen to my interview with Pat Flynn on the problem of evil. And he points out a few things about evil, um, which I think we all accept there are things evil, pointing to the existence of God. Um, yeah, I, I think this one's 
full of landmines for an atheist who seeks to to avoid the existence of God. If you if you accept that things are more or less good at very least, well, or more or less true, well, now you're going down the fourth way and you'll be back at God. If you say that, okay, I'm a moral realist and things ought to be one way or another, well, that implies some type of telos. So now you're going to reach God via the fifth way of Thomas Aquinas. So I like this argument. I think it's important, and a lot of people find it quite persuasive. There's different ways it's laid out, um, but I hope you like the one that I did. All right, time for a sip of delicious tea. I hope it's piney, smoky goodness of the Lapsing Sushung, I think you, you call it, uh, will power me through the rest of the ways because we are only two in. Now, the third way is called Thomas Aquinas' third way. That's my number three point. All right. Now, there are lots of ways to understand this one. So I'm going to kind of do a hodgepodge of a bunch of them. I'm going to present it in a few ways. Um, yeah, people disagree. There's the existential Thomists who I jokingly say collapse every single one of Aquinas's ways into the Dante argument that we will get to, by the way. There's people who focus on contingent beings coming into existence and that being the root of his third way argument. And there's other ones who focus on their ability to go out of existence. Oh my goodness, I'm just going to explain everything here. Okay, let's see. So there, there in reality are these things which we'll call contingent or possible beings that could either be or not be. Um, in other words... There's nothing in their nature which means that they must exist. They could exist or they could not exist. So beings like this would be you and me. Um, well, we know that we're contingent because we came into existence. We aren't eternal beings which existed for all times according to our nature. Now, it's impossible for these types of beings to always exist because anything that could not be would at some time not exist. So just listen to that one again. It's impossible for there to be only these types of beings always existing because anything that could not be, so it has the possibility to go into non-existence, would at some time not exist. And as soon as this thing stops existing, well, out of nothing, nothing comes, and nothing comes after this point. So one way to understand what he's trying to say is to think of all contingent beings like stocks in a portfolio. If one stock ever goes to zero, then that's it. It's gone. It's written out as a loss forever. It can't recover from reaching zero valuation. So if you have a portfolio of stocks that could go to zero each individually, well, then the net future value of your total portfolio is zero dollars because each eventually will reach zero, right? So if you have, let's say, 10 stocks, and these 10 represent all the different uh, possible beings in the universe, let's say they're not the type of beings which will, can exist according to their nature forever, well, then some series of events will happen, and one will go to zero. Now you're down to nine. Great, but you can never get back up to 10. So it ratchets in one direction until over enough time in enough scenarios, everything goes out of existence. Now we have nothing. But wait a minute, we have things now, and this kind of smuggles in the idea of an infinite past. So if we had an infinite past, if you believe this is possible, and you accept that things don't exist by their nature, um, when we're talking about these possible beings, 
well, then we should have nothing now. But we do have things now, therefore we can't have only contingent beings. All right, so that's one way to understand it. Another way to understand it is to put the emphasis um, that if there is nothing in their nature of these possible contingent beings that causes them to exist, then the time that they did not exist isn't some point where they got knocked out of existence, but it's when they got generated, right? Because if you don't have anything in your nature which says that you must always exist, well, then that implies that you had a beginning. You yourself were generated. So there was a time when you didn't exist. It was precisely prior to your generation. Okay. So we can't have everything in reality be this type of contingent being. Well, because we have this giant infinite regress where every single member relies on a previous member to come into existence to grant that member existence. And, well, that type of series is not possible. This would be called an essentially ordered series where every member depends on the, the prior member for its existence in a way which um, can't re reach infinity, which, I don't know, maybe I'll explain that in a different way. All right, um... So Aquinas then moves on to his kind of second stage in this argument where he says, all right, that's possible contingent beings, but what about necessary beings? Well, there's two possibilities with necessary beings. Either they would be necessary through another or necessary through themselves. So an example of something necessary through itself would be, I think Aquinas gives the example, if the sun was somehow a necessary being necessary through itself, which... Definitely not. But imagine it was. Then the rays of the sun, the light of the sun, would be necessary. But it would be necessary through another, namely the sun. Now, I would say that um, logical propositions like A equals A and non-A does not equal A, things like that, those might be necessary beings necessary through another, meaning necessary through God, but they're not necessary through themselves. So can we have an infinite chain of things which are necessary through another? Well, again, no. That's always passing the metaphysical buck down the, the line. We, we can't have that type of chain. So Aquinas concludes with, we have to have a being that is necessary, but it has to be necessary through itself. Um, and this kind of leads us to, to the third way of understanding this, which really focuses on the uh, existential proof, the Dante, where God is not composed of parts. His essence, his what-isness, is identical to his essay, his existence itself. And the third way points us at this type of being. All right. And there's different, oh man, a lot of spinoffs from this one, which I think are very good. And most people can find a formulation of the third way that's really going to click with them. So as far as being very, very strong and user-friendly, I'd say the third way is probably your best bet. Okay, reason number four. I had to take a sip of my tea there. All right, this one's not a proof like the other ones, but instead it should point us probabilistically in the direction of theism. This is where we say that theism has better explanatory power and seems to be a stronger theory in light of the things that we actually find in reality. 
For instance, we are conscious beings. That would be expected under theism, where we have a being who is conscious, willful, rational, and creates things. No surprise, he creates conscious, rational beings with the ability of will. All right, we would expect that under theism, and we find that. So that would point towards that. Um, we, um, we're made of material, but we have the power of intention. We can imagine the future. We can remember the past. That doesn't seem like something that we would find with naturalism. It does seem to be something that we would, we would have in a universe created by, a, uh, by, by God, right? I mean, we can get into that one. And there's lots of fun arguments about consciousness and, the, and philosophy of mind. But we got to hit a bunch more arguments. So we're going to keep on going. Math and reason, which we can think of in our minds and then relate to the universe and is universally true even in distant galaxies, no matter where. These types of universal truths that we can arrive at using our intellects. Would you have guessed that from an atheistic, purely naturalistic material universe? Uh, I don't think so. And then as we discussed in our second reason, we have morality. And we have very strong intuitions that morality is something that's real, something that's not subjective, but objective. How on earth do we ground a, a robust moral realism in something other than a theistic system? That's going to be pretty tricky. We would expect morals if God existed, and we wouldn't if we were in an only naturalistic, materialistic universe. Also, as shown in all the other uh, of the uh, things that I'm presenting here, there are arguments that can be constructed to show God. Also, we, intelligent beings, are interested in doing so. I think that would be highly expected that we could reason to God as rational beings and God would want to be known if he created the universe. Also, we have almost everybody throughout history is religious. So we have this natural orientation towards worship and worship of God. But that means that there's a potential which is in us, according to our nature, to be oriented in this way. Yes, sure, that could come from evolution, blah, 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 whatever. We can grant all of that and still say then all of those factors had to have a potential according to their nature that would orient them to generate beings which have an, orient an orientation to worship God. So just pushing that back to evolution or something like that doesn't help at all. If anything, that proves the point that the universe itself, from its beginning, had a potential which can differentiate it from other potential universes that orients it towards the generation of rational beings who seem to care about God. Would that be expected under an atheistic system? Methinks not. Also, theism is simpler. Really? Yes, it is. Because core of reality is that there's only one fundamental entity, which is God, whose nature is his existence. That's much different than positing a bazillion different entities, which happen to make up piecemeal existence. So it's simpler. And there's, this is kind of a hot, cool argument right now. So I would invite you to dig into that one a little bit more. Also, near-death experiences. Oh, by the way, I know I said there's 10 reasons, but this one kind of has like, I think, what, nine or 10 
embedded in this one. So lots of reasons to believe in God. So near-death experiences. People are um, experiencing something like God, an afterlife, things like that, even with their brains, almost entirely shut off. Would we have expected that under an atheistic system? No. Would we expect that under theism? Again, yes, we would. Or how about the existence of natures themselves? That points to something immaterial. And boy, this is a metaphysical can of worms. But let's take an electron. At all points in the universe, it has the same form. It does the same thing. It interacts in a predictable way. Well, why wouldn't we just expect some type of quantum soup? Why would we expect these distinctive natures, which allow us to form circles around individual points of material and call them by different names according to their new causal powers? So I'd say the existence of real natures with novel causal powers points towards um, a metaphysics which includes immaterial things in addition to material. And ultimately, probably by Aquinas' fifth way, leads us back to God. All right, then we have a universe which seems to be fine-tuned for life, and I talked about that a little bit earlier where I said that it has to have a potential in order to reach that actual state. So from the beginning, it had a potential to create life, um, so these uh, laws of the universe, as you could call them, were oriented towards producing life. So that's that's interesting. Oh, let's see. And then I would also argue that living as a theist um, in light of God seems to work better in reality. Um, I mean, people who, who go to church live longer. You could take, you know, simple things like that. But but also, there seems to be a deep link between happiness, sanity, um, the ability to engage rigorously, intellectually, and scientifically, and understanding theism. Now, you might say, oh, but plenty of scientists are atheists. Yeah, sure, they can be. But science really popped out of Christendom. I would say that there's no good way to ground basic facts about science outside of theism. The idea that, that we, can, we can witness things and understand them as true implies real truth. It implies the existence of a conscious observer, and that brings us into the problems of consciousness, which do neatly get understood in the context of theism. Um, the principle of sufficient, sufficient reason upon which all scientific endeavors rest is something which has to be pushed away from in an atheistic view because principle of sufficient reason brings you very quickly into arguments for God. Um, all right, there you go. Plenty of reasons inside of that reason, a Russian nesting doll of reasons, which leads us to the fourth way. So I'm not going to lay this one out a ton. I will read Aquinas's version of it. I invite you to go back to my episode all about the fourth way, my favorite way. But instead, I want to explain a couple of things that maybe I didn't say in that one, so that if you pair what I'm about to say with what I said in the previous um, episode, and then maybe listen to the uh, upcoming one with that professor where we go through at phasers, you will be a fourth way expert extraordinaire, or at least as much as, as uh, this humble host can equip you to be. All right. So the fourth way relies on a couple of principles, and the main hinge one is that the maximum of a genus is the cause of all in that genus. So what on earth does that mean? Well, 
it's pointing to what's called exemplar formal causality, something I didn't really spell out in the last one because, well, who cares about what it's called? I just tried to illustrate it so people got to understand it. So this is speaking to an ontological dependence relationship on the maximum of a genus, which is why I took the example of saltiness and salt. So to be salty, to be like salt, to share somehow in the nature of salt means that salt must exist because we have this we have this gradation, we have this likeness. So this is an example of exemplar causality, which means if salt stopped existing, it would be impossible for something to be salty because it loses its reference in this uh, it loses the form which it's seeking to be an example of. So that's exemplar causality. Um, basically, you knock off, the thing on which these salty or red-like or what, whatever um, uh, things are, are dependent on, and now you can't have this gradation. But we do have gradations, so therefore there is something which it depends on, and it's the maximum of this genus in an exemplar way. All right. Um, but there is a difference between these types of maximums and ones which ground not just their nature, like salty or redness, but also ground something like being or goodness or truth, but in a maximum way, right? So there's nothing in the nature of salt or red that causes things to have to exist. It just means that things that are salty are salty because of the nature of salt. Things that are red are red because of the nature of red in this formal causal um, way. But it doesn't mean they have to exist. It doesn't mean salt had to exist because the idea of salt itself doesn't contain a necessity of the existence of salt. However, qualities like goodness actually does. Truth does. Being does. And all of these can be said of any individual thing. So something could be good insofar as it exists. Um, something could be true insofar as it can ground truth. And truth is grounded by something which is existing. So these are called the transcendentals, things which can be true of anything. So I can say that you are a good man. This cup of Lapsi Salshang tea is a good cup of tea, though it's getting cold at this point because I talk too much and sip too little. Um, nevertheless, that's it's not um, the goodness is not identical, right? If I said my tea is red and you are red, well, red is the same thing in both of these cases. This is salty. It is not salty. I don't put salt in my tea. You are salty. You may or not may not be salty. That would have to be true in the same way. But if I say goodness or truth or even beauty, things like that, well, it's true, but it seems to transcend these categories. So that's why we call these the transcendentals. Um, and there's a little bit of argument about what is included. I stick to goodness, truth, and uh, being or existence. Um, I could be persuaded that beauty um, is in this category. Many people uh, think it is. Um, I just think it gets tricky when you define beauty and it seems to collapse into goodness um, or perfection or some of the other ones. But that is a different topic. Where on earth was I? All right. Um, do, 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 do. Okay, another little point here. I use, in addition to salt and red, I also use the number one as an example in the previous episode. 
Some people are probably um, put out by this one because unity, metaphysical unity, is also commonly viewed as one of the transcendentals, and it's a quality of God in his absolute divine simplicity. But I actually think that one, like other numbers, is a necessary being necessary through another, and I would draw a distinction between numerical unity and a metaphysical unity. So when I lay out my version of the fourth way, when I use the number one, I'm talking about a numerical unity. So I think there's something different than a metaphysical um, unity. So metaphysical unity, yes, I would say that's one of the type of, of transcendentals. Um, and it, it's, oh man, it, it's kind of baked into the idea of beauty being a transcendental because there's three different um, necessary conditions for something to be beautiful. It's like, a, oh, what is it? Uh, claritas, um, unitas, and something else. Something else. Probably ends in atas. All right, so let's read um, Aquinas's fourth way. I think he got a little bit of understanding here. We got that exemplar causality. We have the maximum genus is the cause of all in the genus. Um, we have this idea of a gradation means that it's approaching an exemplar. And if the exemplar is something like red, it doesn't necessitate its own existence. But if it's something like truth, which is grounded in existence and is a transcendental or goodness in the same way, grounded in being and a transcendental, then whatever would be the maximum of these genuses would in fact um, have to exist because um, its nature includes existence. So Aquinas writes... The fourth way arises from the degrees that are found in things. For there is found a greater and a lesser degree of goodness, truth, nobility, and the like. But more or less are terms spoken of various things as they approach in diverse ways towards something that is the greatest, just as in the case of a hotter, or more hot, that approaches nearer the greatest heat. There exists something that is the truest, the best, the most noble, and in consequence, the greatest being. For what are the greatest truths are the greatest beings, as it is said in the Metaphysics, Book 2, Part 2. Uh, what more is the greatest in its way, in another way, is the cause of all things of its own kind or genus. Thus, fire, which is the greatest heat, is the cause of all heat, as is said in the same book of Plato and Aristotle, da-da-da, reference. Therefore, there exists something that is the cause of all the existence of all things and of the goodness and of every perfection whatsoever. And this we call God. All right. So, I put that one right before. Da, da, da. Reason number six, which is the Deante argument. The Deante argument says that there is a real distinction between essence and essay, or essence and existence. So you may have heard that there's things called matter and form. Well, there's a secret third thing you may not have heard about. Because we're composed uh, hylomorphically of matter and form, where these composite beings were this material, immaterial thing. But angels don't have material, so what's up with them? Well, they're differentiated by their forms. So that's why Aquinas would say that each angel is like onto its own species because species are differentiated by form. We're differentiated from another materially, like dogs are and whatnot, though well, we technically have a different essay. Well, that gets complicated. Anyways, 
So angels are also composite beings, even though they don't have material, because they're a composite of essence and essay, existence and form. So this essay um, is is distinct, and we, we can give an, another argument for it. We understand what a unicorn is. So that's an essence that we can imagine in our minds, which is um, could potentially exist, but it has not been paired with essay. It's not been paired with existence. So that shows how we can hold one and not have the other. So the two are, in fact, distinct. All right. So for a thing with essay to exist, it must receive existence from another. So if it's not holding it by nature, it must be given it. And again, we can't have any type of infinite regress with this. Um, this kind of looks like the second way in a way. Therefore, it, we must terminate in something whose essence is its existence, whose what isness is his isness. Um, and that would be God. So this terminates the regress and explains how all other things get their existence paired with their, um, their or get their essence paired with existence and can come to exist. Um, I'll refer you to Gavin Kerr on this one. He's, um, I would say he's in the camp of existential Thomists, which I like, but just be a little careful with uh, existential Thomists. I think Gavin in general is pretty balanced on this one. But existential Thomists, God bless them like to take any of Aquinas' five ways and somehow gerrymander them all into the Dante argument. I am sympathetic to this, but I think that these arguments are indeed distinct and they're not all just the, just the Dante. Um, Gavin, I think, has a book on this, which is excellent. You can find him talking on the Pat Flynn show um, where he lays out his version of the Dante. So I would definitely encourage you to look at that. And he has an awesome Irish accent, and uh, he's kind of an interesting fellow. He does Kung Fu, and he talks a lot about the Dante. So listen to Gavin on that one. But there's just a basic rundown, a distinction between essence and essay. Um, infinite regress doesn't explain. You can't have composite beings explain themselves. Therefore, we need non-composite being. Essence is his existence. Da, 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 da. I think that dovetails pretty well with what we were talking in the fourth way. Bum, ba, da, bum. We have reached number seven. Um, this one is the fifth way. Um, did I hit all five ways of Aquinas? I think I did. Yes, I think I did. Probably. Anyways, so this potential thing. Remember we talked about potential way early on? So potential points outside of itself towards a future state, such that a thing with a given na nature can reach that future state. A thing with a given nature does in fact achieve its end or go towards the future state regularly and due to its own nature. However, part of the nature of these things may not include um, intention, much less um, imagining, and therefore uh, a type of self-direction towards a future state. So an example of that would be, um, you know, we can have, according to our nature, um, the ability to look towards a future state and move towards it because, hey, we're intelligent beings. We do that stuff. But not all things can do that. They can't imagine the future state or intend an end, right? So an electron, uh, it can't do that. But wait, it does seem to have potentials built into its nature, which orient it towards this future state. And it can't do that by itself, like kind of we can. So what's up? 
Well, therefore, something that is intelligent must have done the intending and imagining and directing for it and set these things towards their end through their natures. A few notes here. You could try to wiggle out of this one. One is you can deny the existence of potential wholesale. But you kind of talked about the problems of that from the top of the episode. You have to say out of nothing, nothing comes. And that's ridiculous and clearly not going on right now. The other one is that you can deny the thing aims at things by its nature. But it, so you would say it, it must do so by a principle that is in act. Right, not by it's not aiming in virtue of its potential. So you could say, hey, no, 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 it's aiming by principle of its act. But if all in it is in act, and yet the thing has not reached the end, well, then it wasn't in act with respect to the end at all, but only in a but only in a state of potential with respect to the end, and only in act with respect to the initial state. The question becomes, is the initial state in act in such a way to orient towards the end? If the answer is, well, no, then there is no reason to expect regularity. But we do see regularity. But if you respond, well, yes, the initial state is oriented towards an end, then guess what? Welcome back to the concept of potential, because potential is orienting the thing towards an end. And this gets a little bit complicated. There's different types of potential. Um, and uh, this type of potential that we kind of teased out, this idea that there is a type of being in act such that it can orient towards the end, that would be collapsed into potential for, you know, reasons. But we have to move on a little bit. Okay, so one can try to locate the reason for the dumb thing, meaning, you know, unintelligent. We're not calling these rocks and electrons dumb. They might have feelings, you never know. Um, so, so the reason for them being intended or directing themselves towards an end, well, maybe it's not something intelligent, but something else unintelligent. But hang on. Now we've created this giant series where things can aim towards an end, but only because something else, which can't aim itself towards its end by nature, aimed that thing towards its end. Well, that type of causal chain is not really possible because you can't have an infinitely long group of things which cannot intend or point to anything somehow magically, if we have enough of them, generate something which is relevantly completely different and different in kind. So that's not going to work. And also looking down to, let's say, the superstrings or the quantum particles, that's kind of going in the wrong direction, right? Because we see that Things like intentionality and, and imagining, that's on the other side. It's not becoming more and more based in matter, or more and more simple. It's actually going to things which are more complex, like us, right? Our parts don't intend, we intend. So that's not going to work. You can't just locate it in some prior or more fundamental, also dumb thing. Well, how about this one? Maybe we could seek to locate the directing agent um, in a universal spirit of the universe. Ooh, this is intriguing, right? Now we're going into panpsychism. All right, the issue with this one would be that this proposed being, right, the universe or this universal spirit, since we have the spirit in matter and then we have all the parts of the matter, well, that makes this being not simple. And, well, God is simple. So this would not be the cause of all these things or even if it 
did direct the things internal to it, well, it itself would be directed by something which is divinely simple. Um, yeah, so we would still need God with this, and it would just be one more created being. So it would just be have this power um, because God granted it. So I, I don't see how this gets around God. It actually would just be another principle of naturalism and one that naturalists, by and large, wouldn't like. Also, this certainly seems like ad hoc reasoning. We've backed them into a corner where they can't explain it simply materially. They don't want to accept God, so they've posited this uh, spiritual being, which is the spirit or soul of the total universe, to solve this teleological problem. Um, so it seems like a band-aid. It doesn't seem like we started out with a series of obvious principles and reasoned to a conclusion like we have in now a whole bunch of arguments. So seems ad hoc. Also, if one makes the obvious concessions that the rest of the arguments that we've addressed and many more will force you into, well, then you'll just arrive back at classical theism. Like if you say, all right, well, I don't really mean that it's the spirit of the universe. I just mean it's an immaterial thing, which isn't composite. And then as, as soon as you have to make all those, um, those, those concessions, when we bring up the five ways and other arguments, well, then we're basically going to beat you back down to classical theism. So I don't see this as a great objection. Um, and finally, you could say, all right, no, I'm biting the bullet. I'm not going to accept potential. I'm, I'm not going to say that even the initial state is oriented. I'm not going to do any of these other things. I'm just going to say it does this and it's by chance. Problem is that's, that's crazy. We understand things with natures do arrive at ends with regularity. And like, I can't even imagine the probability that that would just be completely by chance, that every time you strike a match and it does indeed light on fire. Every time an electron is attracted to a proton, it's just by chance. No way. Colin Bull on that one. Sorry, guys. All right. Um, so, yeah, by the way, some of these I've chosen to kind of go right to Aquinas and, and read directly what he said. Other ones I've pulled out the different premises and conclusions. And other ones I'm just kind of... I don't know, like that one, I'm kind of not following his form, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that, that follows the basic thrust of what he's trying to say. So making a few editorial judgments for your listening enjoyment and overall intellectual edification. Where am I? Let's do, what's number eight? What's number eight? The Kalam cosmological argument is number eight. I didn't know if I was going to include this one, but... um. I think I will. And uh, here's why I was hesitant. Aquinas didn't like this one because he didn't think that there were valid philosophical arguments to prove the finite nature of the past. But here's why I did include this. There are some pretty darn good arguments that can point towards the finitude of the past. And I really don't know where I stand on this one. I might have to do an episode just where I kind of try to come down on one side or the other, kind of explain this a bit. But suffice to say, at very least, we do have pretty good evidence that um, the past is not infinite, both scientifically and philosophically. And this, at very least, is a very strong probabilistic argument. Um, and I included other probabilistic arguments, so why would I exclude this one? Um, the other advantage is it's super, super simple. It goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Conclusion. The universe has a cause. Doesn't get much simpler than that. Very simple sy syllogism. So everything that begins to exist 
has a cause. So that would mean that we're saying that anything that begins to exist would be one of Aquinas's possible or contingent beings. Those two are kind of synonyms. I, I like to use multiple words for the same thing, just in case people aren't familiar with one or one just doesn't strike you because common usage is often different from philosophical usage. So yeah, if something came into existence, it doesn't mean that it, it means that it can't have existence by its nature, right? So it's a possible or contingent being. So the universe began to exist. All right, well, we, we could look at a few arguments for that, and I'll reference a couple. Um, and we seem to have good scientific evidence that it began to exist. So it is a contingent being. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and that cause would have to be a necessary being. And therefore, that being would require a necessary being that's necessary through itself um, in order to be its cause, because that's the way contingent beings work. All right, so any cause which would cause all of the universe to exist would be unbelievably powerful. Uh, it would have to have all the power of all of the universe in order to give power to the universe for it to exist and to have power. Um, then we can extrapolate a bunch of the other um, uh, classical things about God from this. See William Lane Craig. He loves this argument and does a pretty darn good job explaining and defending it. Um, but a key premise that's attacked is the finitude of the past. Um, there are questions scientifically. Um, I still think that this one was totally called by theists. Uh, we could put that in the list of, um, of uh, probabilistic reasons why, why theism is true. It's because we posited a beginning of the universe. And then scientifically, thousands of years later, that's what we found. We found the Big Bang. But there's a few philosophical um, arguments. One is Hilbert's Hotel. Um, you can look that one up. The others are the Grim Reaper paradoxes. And my very favorite argument is called the Eternal Society Paradox because it kind of has a different twist. Ooh, I should try to lay this one out, but I'm not sure if I completely remember it. I do want to invite the author of this one to the podcast and have him lay it out. So keep your fingers crossed. We'll have him on eventually, and um, he can defend this one. Uh, basically, he has a series of events, each one with a coin flip, which means each one is causally independent. And then he draws some paradoxes out of that. And I think that's a big advantage for, from some of the other ways that we go about it. And I'll let him explain it. But there we go. On to number nine, the second way of Aquinas. See, I thought we hit them all. I hadn't. Um, and this one's, I think, relatively simple. And you'll kind of detect the theme, which is going through this whole thing. Things cannot bring themselves into composition because they would need to exist before themselves to bring themselves into composition. And things can't exist before themselves. And we also know that things in general do exist. So they didn't bring themselves into existence, they must have been brought into existence, brought into composition by something prior. But did that thing create itself? Well, it can't if it was in need of being composed, even metaphysically. All right, so now we're in one of these infinite regress situations where we have things dependent for their composition on other things, and this can't go on to infinity because then nothing would ever have been composed because we are just always awaiting the fulfillment of conditions in order for things to come about. Um, but things have come about. Uh, therefore, we had to have something which 
actualized this entire series and allowed all composed things to come into composition. But it can't be something which needs to be composed in and of itself, therefore it cannot be something which is made of parts, therefore the thing at the beginning of this causal chain, this efficient causal chain, by the way, different types of causality, this one would be namely efficient causality, um, yeah, it would have to be entirely simple. It would have to have no parts, not even metaphysical parts. And uh, see the Deante argument for more details of what that would look like. Um, I would also interject here that this would go pretty far in showing that the thing at the beginning is a mind, because Aristotle and others argue that the mind is simple, it's undivided, that's how we can view things as a whole, that's how we can house forms in our mind. So if you take those philosophy of mind arguments seriously, and I think you should, then we have a very good candidate for the creation of things, because we can create things with our mind, it's a very limited power, but we already know of something that's simple, Something that has power, something that has will and reason is called a mind, and that would be able to begin this whole efficient causal chain. All right. Number 10, miracles. So bouncing around a little bit between ones that will appeal to more empirical people and more you know logical, uh, deductive people, this one, I think, is an empirical argument. It's also probabilistic. So it doesn't mean that if we found miracles, God exists, like, necessarily. Because there's alternate explanations. For instance, maybe there's natural features of the universe which allow these things which appear miraculous to come about, and it's not miraculous at all. It's just part of nature in ways that we don't yet understand. Or maybe there are spiritual entities, but they're, you know, demons or something tricking us by these so-called miracles. So there's different alternative hypotheses. Now, I don't think that we should take the skeptical route and um, believe that those are more likely unless we have very good reason to. And that's why I put this firmly in the probabilistic category. If you pray for something specific and it's answered in a timely, powerful way that certainly seems to be in reaction to your prayer, and it's highly unlikely that it would have come about by chance, and you prayed to the God of Christianity, well, that doesn't prove that God exists, that your prayer is answered, but it does make that theory more likely. Right? You started with this God hypothesis. You, in a sense, did a test. Do not test God, mankind, says one verse, but we can say that this is a type of test, right? Um, anyways, and then it seems to confirm it, right? Now, would that be more expected on an atheistic worldview, that if you prayed and you got a strong, you know, specific answer to prayer, would you expect that with the atheistic hypothesis? Well, no, I don't think so. At very least, you would say that in comparison, it would be more likely under a theistic hypothesis that this would happen. Um, and I'll kind of put in another note here, Miracles are commonly directed to specific people or groups of people. So they're not always transferable. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, for instance, if you're arrested for a murder charge, you could have reasons, um, things that you witnessed, which aren't transferable to other people. You could say, no, I was watching The Price is Right that the specific time of the murder, and I know because I have a perspective that allows me to have a privileged access to this information, that I did indeed just sit there and watch TV and eat chips off my belly and not murder that man. 
But you might not be able to prove that to somebody else, what you saw. So miracles aren't always a transferable reason, but they can be a very valuable reason for the individual who witnessed, experienced the miracle, um, just like the, the, um, the experience of that person who didn't kill the person is like completely 100% valid for that person, but might not be valid for somebody who didn't have that experience. So there you go. Miracles. If there are any miracles that could prove God and the miracles happened and they were directed in, in, in such a way to reveal God, then this would be very, very strong evidence. Now, what about miracles that happen in other religions? Um, yeah, I think that's totally not a problem. A, I think Christianity has way more. I think Judaism, especially prior to uh, Christianity, maybe only prior to Christianity, they had a ton. Even other religions and other uh, groups said that this was true. For, for instance, when Islam came around, um, there was different writers who said, hey, um, you do know the Christians have had miracles and the Jews have had miracles. Um, you guys don't have any miracles, so what's up? So there you go, like a historic third-party group saying that at the advent of one of the religions, no miracles, but they weren't necessarily Christian or Jewish, and they did acknowledge that there were, in fact, miracles in that religion. So one thing I'd say is we have more miracles, better attested miracles, higher quality miracles. And that's what we would expect if we were the true religion. However, I don't think we would expect zero miracles in other religions. There is, after all, such thing as natural law religion. So there's understanding of moral laws which are baked into religious ritual practices that do reflect divine law. They're not perfectly, but hey, better than nothing. We do have this idea that there's sin, that we need to have a sacrifice to atone for it, um, and go anywhere at any time in human history, and you'll find a priesthood, you'll find sacrifices. It's this innate desire to have worship for God. And um, yeah, it's not always perfect, but I think those who sincerely seek to um, make amends with their creator for the sins that they've done, um, they're practicing a natural law religion. And they should get all the way to Catholicism because that's the full thing, and we have include the entire natural law religion plus the revealed religion as well. Um, Tertullian, well, I messed that up, whatever that guy's name, the early church father, references how the Greeks were justified by philosophy, which acted as a tutor or a schoolmaster. And that echoes what Paul writes in scripture, where he says that the Jews had the law as their tutor, as their um, pedagogue, as their schoolmaster. So there's an acknowledgement that God does give some type of understanding to different groups to help them move towards the truth. So why wouldn't he include miracles in, in those groups too? That certainly doesn't disprove the existence of God. And typically that type of objection is only launched to try to disprove a single religion, but I don't see how that does that either. All right, so suffice to say, if you see miracles and they're in the context of a religion, well, then that would give credence to religion, that one, and religion in general, and certainly the existence of a supernatural and God. All right, where was I? Number 11, you thought there was only 10. Well, this one's kind of a meta argument. So this is called the argument from so many arguments, and I really like this argument. If you take the 10 arguments that I listed, 
and we assigned a probability to each of them. And we were very um, pessimistic. We said, although they sound good, they're relatively convincing, blah, 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 blah. There's a 70% chance that each one of these is wrong. Only a 30% chance that each one of these individual arguments do what they say they do, and they show the existence of God. Well, if any one of them shows the existence of God, well, there you go. Then you can believe God exists. We have something that shows that. So we only need one to succeed. And I'm basing this from the argument that these are coming from independent sources. Um, And I think they are. I think that these are all very diverse groups. And anybody who challenges it and says, no, well, you're trying to make these different arguments and you're presupposing a common metaphysics, well, that's not entirely true. I mean, the fourth way runs more on a Platonistic metaphysics and some of the other ones are more Aristotelian and some, like the Kalam, actually come originally from Islamic philosophy. So no, I don't think that's true. And even if there was, well, then you can't look at independent tests like this inside of science, right? Because that would be a common metaphysics. But we do this type of stats work inside of science in that type of common metaphysics to see how um, different lines of reasoning can converge and give us a, um, uh, a likelihood higher than just the, um, the original probability of the single thing being true. Oh, that was a confusing sentence. Anyways, basically, you come from independent places, and it's not like if you have two arguments, each one 30% true, then together they're still just 30% true. No, it, it actually kind of adds up in a way. So how would it add up with our arguments? Well, we have 10 arguments that I listed, though there are many more. And if we say there's only a 30% chance of each one being true, then the probability that one of them is true is 97%. Well, you look at that. 30% chance of each one being true. 97% chance of at least one being true. All right, so do atheists have a similar argument? Can they say, well, there are so many atheistic arguments that I could run the same thing and neutralize this argument from so many arguments? Well, no, they can't. Um, They do a lot of work trying to neutralize our individual arguments. Have at it, go to town, give it a try. Um, Pretty tough to do, I would argue. They have the God of the gaps argument. You're just trying to explain things in nature that... Um, have a gap in understanding and inserting God. Well, A, no, we're not. And um, B, that that doesn't actually prove the non-existence of God, right? You're just critiquing our epistemology. And critique away. Okay, there's the logical problem of evil. That is an argument that there is no God, right? So there's evil in the world. God would not do this. He has the power to undo this. So either he's evil or he's he's not powerful. He's not powerful. He's not God. If it's evil, he's not God. So there's no God. That was a pretty sloppy way to lay it out. But basically, um, different forms of the logical problem of evil. The issue with that is, as we talked about in the previous episode with Pat Flynn, even most smart top-level atheists have denied that this actually works, that there's really a logical problem. They say it's more of a probabilistic thing. Uh, They've kind of backed away from pushing this so strongly. And I think that there's actually a good case for God from evil. Um, At very least, it implies contingency. It implies um, 
a moral law. It implies things are more or less good. It implies teleology, and all of those would direct you towards the classical um, proofs for God. So maybe they have this one, but they certainly don't have 10. Um, and I don't think that their arguments are terribly likely. So yes, argument from many arguments is a very good um, way of framing this. It's easy to break one stick, but it's very hard to break a whole bundle of sticks. Which leads us to Pascal's wager. Oftentimes, people qualify to death this. Well, he's only saying that, you know, if it's 50-50, you might as well just throw your lot on the theism side. I would say no. I, I mean, you have to proportion your bet based on the return and the probability, right? So if you're picking a stock and you say, well, this one might go up 4% next year, well, then you're going to proportion your bet differently than if you say, well, this one um, could also, you know, fail, but it might yield a thousand percent. So you have to look at the risk-weighted rate of, uh, rate of return, right? And I think that's what my man Pascal would say. He, we should use the risk-weighted rate of return. So the risk that you fail on your bet being a theist is that you lived as a theist your whole life and then poof, you're dead and nothing happens. The risk that you have if you live your life as an atheist is that you end your life and you're met with God and you realize, oh, this isn't good, I'm going to hell. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a big risk. And then the reward for the theist would be that you enter paradise. Pretty good. The reward for living your atheist life the entire life is, well, well there's nothing at the end. We would have to say that it's better along the way. But even that's not true. Um, theists in general are happier. Churchgoers live longer and are healthier. And I think that if you accept a real moral law, uh, you'll live a happier life. Even a lot of, um, let's say, the Stoics, um, Aristotelians, Platonists, uh, the, the Greek and Roman schools would all tell you to obey some type of moral law for the good life. Um, so yeah, I don't think you get an advantage in this life. You definitely don't get an advantage in the afterlife. So I don't see why you would place a bet on atheism um, at all, right? Um, so there you go. It's not just if you're 50-50. If you think it's possible that theism is true, well, you should investigate it thoroughly. You should take the argument seriously. You should run what I did before and see what the cumulative probability would be instead of saying, oh, everybody's, everything's more likely to be false than true. Well, I don't care. I ran it at a 30% rate of, uh, of uh, being able to prove the thesis, um, and it still yielded 97%. So this isn't to say that if you're on the edge, you should fake it, right? But I think it does call you to do kind of a test. Because let's put it this way. If God exists and he made all of reality, you included, and you exist in the context of this reality, then if you live in a way which takes seriously theism, that there is a God, then you'll find that your action in this reality uh, has a match, right? That it works. So if it's created by God, then the God theory will work in reality. If it's not created by God and you operate with the God hypothesis, well, then you're going to see some type of a mismatch or an incongruity. 
So I would take Pascal's wager to say, if these things were persuasive to you, go and see if the theistic worldview functions in the universe and if there's a match. And then that's another reason why you should accept theism. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This one went long. That was um, a lot of arguments, a lot of things. So if you have questions, if anything was confusing, um, if you have anything to add, anything at all, um, let me know. I'd be happy to hear about it. Um, I think I'm going to have one more top 10 episode, at least one more top 10, because I like these. And I think a lot of you guys do too. I've got some positive responses so far. The next one should be top 10 reasons to be a Christian. So we did Catholicism, we've done theism, now we're going to strike right down in the middle and talk about why one ought to be a Christian in general. And of course, that's going to center around the person of Christ, but it's not just going to be um, a resurrection apologetics, as important as I think those are. Um, we'll hit a few other things too. If you guys are interested, I'd love to do some ones in economics. Nobody listens to the economics podcast, but hey, that's okay. I do them anyway. I like them. A few of you do too. Maybe I could do like a top 10 reasons to reject Keynesian economics or top 10 reasons why the Austrian school of economics is actually better than you think. Not completely Austrian, but people need to give it some credence. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, we'll call it right there. Again, since these run a bit long, we're not going to do the mailbag this time. Keep sending your questions in. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, if you have friends, and if you like sharing, why don't you share this with your friends? It really does help the podcast. We are ticking up. That is super awesome. And uh, again, shout out to our Korean and Japanese listeners because, um, yeah, they're sharing. So good good job, guys. You are outpacing the sharing level of the U.S. ones, I believe. I don't know stats, numbers, things like that. All right. I'll talk to you next time.